If you will, turn back in your Bibles or whatever form and copy of God's Word you may have to Numbers chapter 11. And may God slow the time down for us today by setting our hearts to simply want to sit, sit at the feet of Christ. The apostles said it when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it's good for us to be here. The safest place that you can be is in the presence of God. We got a lot of things to think about today, but I want you to meditate on Moses and pray for him. Pray for him, and I'm using that on an illustrative level. Obviously, Moses is in a better place than you and me right now. But as we're dealing with the narrative, because narrative theology is about you and I entering into the text and understanding how God moves and works among human beings. And he reveals himself in that way. He's the the God of the Bible is a God that doesn't hover over creation in a way in which he constantly remains separate from it. But he's revealed as he interacts with his creation in a very profound and a very intimate and a very personal way. That's the difference between the true and the living God and all of the false gods of this world system. They're all transcendent. They're all aloof. They're all um, so far away from humanity. And if they are among humanity, or they're so vain and so, so uh, subhuman in their, their morals and ethics, like the Greek pagan gods, which are simply extrapolations of human beings uh, in a grotesque way. But the God of the Bible, if you read your Bible carefully, has let us know that he is profoundly committed to us and his purpose and will in our life. So we're looking at the Genesis, the Exodus narrative, and we're in the book of Numbers because we are now just a few steps away, just a few steps away from Israel realizing the promise that God has for them. And this is where the title will come in as we get ready to work through our points today. So many things to deal with in Numbers 11. It's an epic, epic portion of scripture But the title is Arise, Move, and Go. That imperative is given by God to his people when to take their journeys, as I shared with you. And that is also the case in our life from time to time as well. There will be times where God tells you to arise, move, and go. You know that. There will be times when God wants you to change your position or change your perspective or modify your perspective or view. There will be times when he'll want you to reposition or advance or retreat or take another angle at something because at present you are in a situation where you are in danger of failing to advance in God's purpose. Did that make some sense? Right. Our life is filled with these kind of interruptions by divine providence where he says you got to do something right now. Some things are going on in the dark realm that you may not be aware of. And I'm letting you know by certain signals, by certain indicators, by certain provenances and certain trials, it's time to arise and go. And that might be economic, that might be filial, that might be geographical, it might be spiritual. But sometimes you and I have to be ready to arise, move and go. That means we got to get out of a comfort zone that we're operating in that has actually become uh, demeritorious to us. It has not been helpful. We can all get used to a certain position, can't we? 
And, uh, and that position can become so comfortable that it becomes an idol in our life. And God has to kind of shake things up and tell you and I, all right, all right, it's time to move. Otherwise, you're going to lay down, recline, and allow somebody else to plug in, and you will have taken the blue pill and gone to sleep. And so the people of God have to know that God is moving us all the time to keep us awake and aware of what's going on. Beyond that, you and I are to follow the cloud and the fire because that is his evident presence in our life. Am I making some sense? All right, so we're in a situation now that will be helpful for you. The title of our message and our subpoint is, You Have Need of Patience. You Have Need of Patience. I think we all agree with that. Those of us who are much older in the faith, we have learned that it does not do well for me to be impatient. Impatience is often an indicator that we are presumptuous in terms of God's will in our life, or we are so agitated because we're not having things our way that we want to move and manipulate and cajole things. You have need of patience. The children of Israel have been have embarked in a journey with God that has now lasted 14 months. I want you to capture that from the time that God called them out of Egypt to where they are now has only been 14 months. The first set of encampments, we saw this is is back in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, Let's start at Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. I want you to see the parameters of time. I want to deal a little bit with time, and then I'm going to get into some other issues with you. But I want to see if you and I have figured out how time is only on your side when you are submissive to God's will. Time is only on your side when you're submissive to God's will. And when you're submissive to God's will, you'll wait as long as God wants you to wait until it's time for you to move. And then you'll move immediately when God says move because time is on your side when you're submissive to God's will. Does that make some sense? God has never called you out of something for which he has not also called you into something. He's never going to abandon you in the middle of his plan for your life. Never will he do that. Even though sometimes you'll be challenged in your own mind around that. God will never leave you nor forsake you if he's taking you on a journey. And so you and I have to learn the rhythm of relationship in that regard. The rhythm of relationship is sometimes arise, move, and go. Sometimes be still and know that I am God. Sometimes you have to sit you down long enough for you to rediscover God is God and not you. So, and and, and that's going to require patience. Are you keeping up with me? All right, so biblically, the concept of patience, for those of you who are new and, 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 and falling into the vortex of my voice, the idea of patience is not merely just that you somehow learn how to um, understand the duration of a thing, but it's you actually learning how to endure the weight that comes along with that duration. Literally, the idea of patience is learning how to endure, to endure. That means you are actually accommodating and engaging difficulties in your life for the moment because at the moment, this is what God has for you. Are you keeping up with me? This is both the Old Testament and New, so I want you to get that. A lot of times the New Testament New Testament will use the word patient, 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 like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, patience, patience. But patience simply means the capacity to bear up under the weight. 
meaning it's not time to throw the weight off of you. You're bearing up under it because it's actually transforming you. It's strengthening you. Even though you're feeling perceptively like you're getting weaker. You're feeling perceptively like you're going to let go any moment, like you're going to just collapse any moment. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, Lord, I can't handle this. By the way, I'm saying pray for my boy Moses. Pray for him. Because if you didn't get it in the text, he's saying, God, this is this is too much. This is too much. I'm 14 months in and I kind of want a retirement check right now. Pray for him because this is a model about the stress that's placed upon leadership to transform them too. A lot of lessons, a lot of lessons. Lessons for you fathers. So don't act like this is not about you. This is about you fathers. Lessons about you mothers. So don't act like this is not about you. It's about you mothers. Whatever leadership position God has called you to, he's calling you to extrapolate from Moses' difficulty how to negotiate with your God around that trial so that you don't give up. And I want you to see how marvelously God responds to Moses when we get there. But right now, I want you to take a set of mental parameters of 14 months. Now, 14 months is not that long. But when you're in a trial, it can be like an eternity, right? 14 months can be like, wow. The Old Testament says it often. And then in the book of the apocalypse, you hear this from the saints under trial. Are you ready? How long, oh Lord? How long? And often God doesn't respond back and give you a timetable. Often he won't even say anything. In the book of Revelation, he says, look, I've given you my righteousness. Put your clothes on and sit down. I didn't give you these new garments for you to be here forever. In a minute, you're going to show up and show out in your new garments. But right now, sit down and be still. And this is really what he's about to do with Moses, if y'all understand the gospel the way that I do. He's going to help Moses. But in the third month, third month, that's 90 days in the Hebrew calendar, right? We're dealing with moons. We're talking about uh, lunar calendars in the prophetic sense. When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of what? So this is what we understand. Now, in the third month, they are in that 10th encampment that we've been dealing with for about five sermons. Are you guys with me? If we had our map up, you'd see it again all the way down at the bottom of the trajectory of their wilderness sojourn. They're down in the area called Mount Sinai Peninsula. Are you guys with me? In just a few days, they're going to be up on the brink of the promised land ready to enter in the promise, but they don't know it. They don't know just in a few days, 11 to be exact scripturally, they're going to be buttressing right up against the blessing that God is preparing them for. Now, sometimes that's how it is in your life and mine. We do not know that right around the corner is a major blessing that God has prepared for us But it might as well not be if we're not on the same page with God in terms of where we are right now. So right now, something major is going on that is remarkable. Oh, by the way, for those of you who understand our theology here, you know the recapitulation principle. Do you know it? Do you know when events occur in the text you're dealing with that occur previously before as well and you can get signals on them? Ah, we've been through this before. This is kind of like the deja vu in your own life. 
And so Numbers 11, 1 opens up with them complaining. Have we been there before? In fact, we've been there five times. I don't have time to go through it, but the writer of narratives is helping you understand certain kinds of patterns. Israel is a complaining people. Not y'all, but Israel is a complaining people. And we're going to deal with some of that now. You see, we're down at Rephidim, Mount Sinai, Horeb. When you track all the way up, you see Kadesh Barnea, Barnea way at the top there. Do y'all see that on the red tracking? All right, that's where we will be in just three chapters, okay? In fact, in, in, yeah, in three chapters, two chapters, we'll be there. That means they're on the brink of entering in. Is that true? Now go back to ex, uh, uh, Exodus 19, 1 and 2, where we are. They are now in the third month, right? Now in that third month, several things are occurring. Several things are occurring. That's under point number one. You know that. Subpoint A, government has been established, has it not? That's Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments have been given. Uh, legislation has been established, has it not? Moses has uh, been given the wisdom of his father-in-law Jethro, and he has set up rulers over tens and hundreds and thousands, has he not? They've been given a kind of legislative outline by God from Exodus 21 to Exodus 24. I told you about that. It's about uh, civil law. It's about ceremonial law. It's about agricultural law, how we should be among one another. Uh, Israel now is being actually educated by the king, the king of glory, God himself, as to how they should be since they are about to be a new people. I want you to get that. So not only is Israel in the wilderness, but they're in the wilderness with God. They're in the wilderness with leadership. They're in the wilderness with legislation. They're in the wilderness with the symbols of God's presence, fire and clouds. And so they have a whole lot in the wilderness that they did not have when they were in Egypt. I want you to hold those two realities in tension because these are the trials for you and me. You are hearing a wild, bizarre, for the fourth time utterance out of the mouth of the children of Israel. It was better in Egypt. This is what I meant by recapitulation. When you read narratives carefully, you mark the things that were said beforehand. Because if you look carefully at our text, the text tells us, and God heard them. Now, God always hears. But when that kind of language is given, what that means is God's paying attention to mark and respond to what they're saying. See what I'm getting at? That's why we have a narrative in chapter 11. So under point number one, 14 months of what? Preparation. That's what Israel's been going through. They've been learning how to trust God for 14 months. Only 14 months. Only 14 months. I'm going to lay a foundation for you to get it. 14 months between being slaves in Egyptian bondage, where the Pharaoh rulers were intent in slaughtering every man child so they could absorb the women of Israel into the body politic of Egypt and eradicate the Israelites and create a new seed. Only 14 months have they been out. Am I making some sense? 14 months were they delivered out by a mighty God and an outstretched hand and wonders we've already talked about. And this God has brought them out. And this God has set them in the wilderness 
as a place of solitude away from any kind of distractions. We might call this boot camp. We might call this a retreat. We might call this a place where we can, in an unpeded way, now be educated as a new people group. Because you are now under new management. Another sovereign has come in and bought you. Can y'all, can y'all keep up with me? Watch this. You've gone from being a servile, slavish state to a sovereign nation. Some of y'all will get that. See, they'll come home a little bit later. Israel is about to be a sovereign nation. A sovereign nation. A nation that is designated to be ahead of all the other nations in the world. A sovereign nation. A free people under God. Liberated from the tyranny, liberated from the threat, liberated from the fear, liberated from the manipulation, coercion of every other nation in the world. Am I making some sense? This is called the gospel in its essence. Christ came to liberate us from the power of death, from the tyranny of Satan, from the curse of the law to make us a sovereign nation. Somebody understands what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a free people under God. A sovereign nation. Israel is on the brink of manifesting what it means to be a sovereign nation. Just 14 months ago, they were a servile slave state under Pharaoh's kingdom and Egyptology. Just 14 months, they have been transformed structurally, geographically, and covenantally. Isn't that amazing? I want y'all to get that as we drill down into it. Look how good God has been to a bunch of people that don't even know it. Point number one, 14 months of preparation, government legislation, civic and ceremonial duties, chapters 21 all the way 31. And then we saw in chapter 24, did we not, a hierarchy that was established, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and the 70, which have come back up again, have they not? So it's not like Israel is not better for being in the wilderness, which to the contrary of their opinion is it had been better to be in Egypt. Israel is way better off. They've got a legislator. They've got a governance. They've got an executive branch. They've got a sovereign king. Ah, they are also becoming the Lord's army. Because you got to have a military. We'd be here a long time if I had to unpack all that. God's church is called to be militant. Christians have forgot that. Subpoint B, subpoint C rather, we have also what? The tabernacle of witness in the wilderness among them, do we not? And you guys may have not known it because we're in Numbers chapter 11. So that means we've come all the way through Exodus, right? And so we, we were dealing with Exodus 33 and 34. Now we're in Numbers 11. But look in Exodus chapter 40 right now at verse 31. And then we'll look at verse 38. Because in Exodus 40, guess what has been consummated? The gathering of the material necessary to build the tabernacle. If you guys recall, Moses said to Aaron and to all the people, give your gold, give your silver, give your precious things. We need uh, silk. We need uh, badger skin. We need um, we need dye for the the coloring of crimson. This was a a major effort that they had, had to put into it. But if you'll notice, God gave them everything they needed before they came out of Egypt so that they could build a tabernacle unto God in the wilderness. 
And so God says, now it's your turn to reciprocate with me. I've given you something. Do what? Give it back. But this is how I want you to give it back. I want you to give it back in the form of building me a citadel and a throne so I can dwell among you called the tabernacle. That's the goal of the church of God everywhere in the world. It's to establish establish a banner for King Jesus and to set up a tabernacle among men. That's what a local church is supposed to be. A tabernacle for the most high God. So that when men and women come in, they can know and sense and perceive propositionally the presence of the Lord in a real sense is here. Am I making some sense? I want to extrapolate that a little bit more. That should be in every home. Every husband and every wife should be engaging in the high vertical blessing of worshiping the true and the living God. And the presence of God should permeate the home so that the children are used to God having his way in the home. So that anyone that even walks past your door, they are often going to be met with praises and songs and worship of God when the windows are open. Because we don't live in caves. We want people to understand what that raucous is in our house. Pastor Jesse getting down on that guitar and he worshiping the true and the living God. And he's got eight children that know how to sing 10 times better than him. And they're getting down with the get down in Jesus name. Does that make some sense? That's how you praise God in your neighborhood. Open the windows and let the praises flow out. Oh, them, oh that's what kind of people they are. Just like that. Yeah, that's what kind of people they are. They're not scared. They're not afraid. They're not hiding. We're not secret agents. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear that saxophone flowing out with praises under God. The drum set going and the bass line in Jesus name. That's the way the home is supposed to be. Then when you go out, love on your neighbor. Don't be looking at them all crazy. eyed. don't mug them with your face. Tell them you're happy in Jesus' name. Can I do something for you? When you go out, do you need me to watch the house? You know, I got friends. We can watch a house. Right. So they can know you're not there as an enemy, but as an asset. Because, see, in the time of trouble, they're going to ask you, what do you do in these kind of struggles? And you can pray for them and you can draw them near to you, which is what we're called to be. Every home should be a sovereign nation under God. So this is what is said in Exodus 40, verse 31. And Moses and Aaron and the sons washed their hands and their feet. Look at verse 38, because they all are in it. And when they went into the tent of the congregation, there it is. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire on it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Verse 39 through 40, if there's uh, more to it. That's it. Okay, so in, in, that, in that chapter there, what that chapter explains to us is how that Moses had finished the tabernacle and God blessed it with his presence. This is where we're moving from Exodus to the book of Numbers because Moses and the people of God have set up God's house, God's throne, God's citadel. And now God is ready to work with them in terms of moving forward. So under point number two, the formation of what? a military established. This is what the book of Numbers is about. If you don't know, the book of Numbers is about how God in his electing love has chosen a people and he's called them by name and he's numbered them. And there's none in the kingdom of God that God does not know. And all that are meant to be in God's kingdom will be in God's kingdom. 
and the number is particular. Like God numbers the stars of the skies and calls them each by name. Every believer is a star in God. Because you and I are called to dwell in heavenly places, to be illuminaries for the glory of God, to lead men and women to the son of righteousness, Jesus the Christ. Am I making some sense? This is why Daniel said, and those that believe shall shine as the stars in heaven forever. The Bible speaks of the metaphor of the sun and the moon of the stars as being heavenly illuminaries. And so that's our role in this dark world is to be a light. That leads to the true light, Jesus Christ himself. Am I making some sense? All right, so it's important for you to, to, to see that metaphor. But the numerical value here in the book of Numbers, that's why it's called the book of Numbers, is because it's really about strategically calling the men out and the men in particular. So we're going to do some numbers right quick before I go on. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, you and I are going to get what I call the third category of biblical manhood. Look at Numbers 1, verse 45. So were all those that were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their what? That means the numbering under the patriarchal model only spoke to the numbering of the men. But it wasn't exclusive of the women and the children, but for the purposes of the hierarchy of structure, which is what my world not only hates, but inverts. In its hostility to the true and the living God. So it's important for y'all to get that because we promote biblical manhood here. And we radically commit to the principle that God set up a structure by which the world can be safe if we have men who know what it means to be providers. But they're also called to be protectors. And that's what this portion of the scripture is about. God's calling all the men out at a certain age to tell them, listen, now that you have entered into adult life and you, you know, you feeling yourself and you're ready to be married and take on a family. Don't even imagine you're capable of doing that unless you're first ready and prepared to provide for her. And then the next thing is to what? Protect her. Did y'all get that? Let me just make sure you understand that. Don't even mess with a knucklehead brother if he don't understand those first two P's. Don't even mess with him because he going to want to produce with you. But he got the the first protect and pay. That's old school. Is that old school or what? (laughs) Stay with me. Stay with me. I'm not quite done. Don't undervalue yourself, young ladies. Don't ever undervalue yourself. Don't ever undervalue yourself. Don't ever undervalue yourself. There are all kind of men that don't care about production, that don't care about protection. All they care about is producing. And then they're ready to walk away from that. And this is also part of the inversion that is going on in my culture for 50, 60, 70 years. So we're very used to the breakup of the hierarchy of the man, woman, and the children. Are we not? We become maladjusted to it. Have we not? maladjusted to it. And the believer has to understand it on both sides, God's side and man's side. That's why we're called to be prophetic and priestly. We care about the brokenness of the family. Yeah, we do. But we also must uphold the standard, right? We can't let our young men devolve into fixed pre-adolescent states where they don't know how to make a dime, let alone a dollar. 
And they don't know how to protect even themselves, let alone people, precious human beings that would be taken under, under their care. Here it is. Notice what the text says. Give you the number. So we're all those that were numbered of the children of the house of their fathers from 20 years old and up. Right. These are the ones 20 years old and up that can go to war. All that were able to do what? Go forth to war in Israel. Right. Isn't it a natural principle of integrity that a man gets to enjoy the soil, the terrain, the blessings, all of the benefits of the kingdom. I mean, this is the whole idea with Israel. You're going to have carved out for all your tribes land and territory and and fruit trees and vine trees and, and all that. But don't you feel like you're obligated to protect it and protect your families in it? Y'all see what I'm getting at? All right. So look at the next verse. Here it is because it gets into the numbers. Even all they that were numbered were 600,000. Do you see that? 3,500 and what? Right. So write that number down for yourself right quick because I'm getting ready to teach you something. God doesn't give you numbers for no reason. He gives you numbers for approximations. Not always for exact preciseness, but approximations. Because what I've been saying to you for several years now is that the fundamental number of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt was about 1.3, 1.4 million people. Have I not said that? Right? And there are all kinds of arguments about uh, diminished numbers, even larger numbers. What do I mean by that? When all you have here in terms of the men is 600,355, uh, uh, right? 600,355 600,355 men, you have um, a little bit more than a half uh, a million men, do we not? But when you add a wife and three kids, you're up into the millions. You do know that, right? Right. This is not hard math to do. Now, this is interesting because this is given to you right here in that 14th month of their coming out of Egypt. It's just in the 14th month. Now, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 12, 37, Exodus 12, 37. They are in Israel on their way out. I want you to look at the numbers. I'm going to give you one more after that so that you can lock this in. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses. That's inside Egypt. We learned that, right? They're now leaving Egypt out of Ramses and Succoth about what? Oh, 600,000 on foot. Besides that were men, besides what? Which means also besides what? Women. 600,000. So notice from the time they left out to where we are in our text, we're still in the same ratio of men, aren't we? Because you don't have a fixed number here. You only have what I told you is an approximation. Did that come home? Only 600,000. And watch this for those of you who are more theologically acute. When your Bible gives you just general numbers like 10,000 or 5,000 and Jesus fed 5,000, that's an approximation. That's not a literal number. Plus women and children. That means he fed 15,000. Am I making some sense? Right. And that's important for you to get. And the number of the elect in Revelation chapter 15 is one hundred and forty four thousand. That is an approximation. That's not a literal number. These are principles of approximations to show you that God knows all those that are his. Am I making sense? All right. So from the time they came out of Egypt to where we are at the Mount Sinai Peninsula, we have exactly the same number of men to the number. Now, in Numbers chapter 156, is that true? To the number, there's one more number I want you to look at 
and this will be in Numbers 26 at the end of the counting system. In Numbers 26, I want you to look at verse 51. Numbers 26, verse 51. Numbers 26, uh, verse 51. Are we there? These were the number of the children of Israel, 600,000 and a thousand seven hundred and thirty. You guys see that? These were the numbers. Now I want you to mark the number in Numbers chapter one and mark the number in Numbers chapter 20, uh, Numbers chapter 26. Y'all got that? The numbers are almost the same in their general amount, are they not? We're still at 600,000 plus or minus. Is that true? But I want you to see, look at me. The space between numbers one, that is the time chronologically in numbers 26, is 38 years. Are y'all with me? We're going to see that in a couple weeks because Israel should have been in the land in the third month. But because of their rebellion, they got to hang out for 38 more years. Y'all keeping up with me? Uh, They should have been in in the the, the, uh, uh, 14th month. But we got between Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. We're coming to the end of the book of Numbers and we have the same number of men, do we not? Even after a what? 40 year period almost. Because we're being explained as to what's going on, why uh, Moses was told to number them again. Look at verse 64. Verse 64, Numbers 26, 64. I'll move after this, but I want you to get the framework. But among these men that were numbered was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron, the priest, numbered when they numbered the children of Israel back in Numbers chapter 1. So you got a different group of men here than they were back in Numbers 1. Why? Look at the next verse. It will tell you. Verse 65. Are you there? For the Lord had said unto Moses and Aaron, they shall surely die in the wilderness. Who is that? Everyone that bought into the evil report of chapter 13. Now we're in chapter 11, right? We're going to be coming to chapter 13 in a minute, are we not? And how germane then is my proposition that you have need of patience. You have need of patience. That after you have done the will of God, you might what? Receive the promise. There was a whole litany of men older than 20 years old that perished in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. Am I making some sense? It's important for you to get that. But what I love about this, I've taught this for years. Even though there was a bunch of unbelievers among the children of Israel, God still had an approximation of his elect. 600,000 coming out of Egypt, 600,000 in the beginning of the numbering in chapter one and 600,000 at the end. None of those for whom Christ died will ever perish. Did that come home? Even though men will perish, the elect will be kept. And the elect going into the promised land would be those that were the babies that did not engage in the rebellion. That's what God, it says, the little ones are going to go in. Those that you said would be a prey, they're going to go in. And you old folk that don't believe God, y'all going to die in the wilderness with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, except you become like a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And so the little child is the metaphor of one who trusts their father implicitly. They just trust mom and daddy implicitly. They don't have to have all the answers. They don't have to figure it all out. They can just sit and go ask my daddy. 
What a great relief when you have a daddy that knows everything. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about Mr. Richard Brock, but we're, we're close. We're, we're working on it. Well, how great it is for us as children of God to know that we don't have to answer everybody's stupid questions. Because, you know, people coming with stupid questions, right? I don't have to answer all those questions. Go to God. God the one set this thing up. This is his book. This is his covenant. This is his plan. Now, sometimes we want to try to answer it, but when we know that we have a father that knows all the answers, we ain't got to answer all the problems. We're trying to figure some of this stuff out too, aren't we? Right? Israel had to go through something to end up on the brink of the promised land and not be allowed to go through for another 38 years. The mindset of the people that are about to go in now are way different than the people that should have went in the first time. You have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Am I making some sense? Okay, I'll leave that there. I want to go to point number two because I don't want to belabor that long. This is where I really need you to understand the difficulty that my brother Moses had. Point number three, failure to see God's blessings again. Y'all there? Look at verse one of our text. There are a number of things I want to work through here after having given you that preliminary, because this is really where God speaks up. And when the people complain, do you see that word complain? It means murmur. That's what you heard before in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, Exodus 16, and Exodus 17. Israel is being told by God after you, after you observe the Passover lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost. I'm coming in and I'm killing everything that's not covered by the blood. That's gospel. Now, in the morning, I want you guys to get on up and make your journey out. And don't you look back and make haste. And Israel did exactly what God said. Can you imagine all 1.3 million people? They got their bags packed. They've eaten their unleavened bread because it couldn't leaven. It didn't have time to. We talked about that. And leaven is a symbol of sin and pride and being puffed up. So they're eating that flat bread, right? Unleavened bread because they got to go in a hurry. And God leads them out. I bet you they was happy about it for about one hour. They was happy about it for one hour. Then they get up to the Red Sea and then they turn around and look back and they see Pharaoh's horsemen coming and they say, Moses, why did you lead us out here? We told you that it was better for us to be in Egypt. Started murmuring against them, did they not? Started murmuring. And Moses, is, this is why you got to pray for Moses because he tripping too. He trying to figure out, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. Here we go now. We're up against the Red Sea. Children of God, sometimes you will be there. This is what I meant by the inexplicable. So God will often give us trials we can explain. We can find Bible verses to make us happy. about. Oh, this is what the Bible says, right? All things work together for good. That's a big general one, right? We can use that one in what we call the sterile abstract. It don't feel good, but it works, right? And then sometimes God will give us specific Bible verses in relationship to the trial that we're going through. He'll let us know in the midst of famine, you won't starve. He will take care of you. He will always feed his own, right? And it'll get even more particular than that, right? In the midst of darkness, he will take you by the hand and he'll lead you through that darkness. You don't see his face, but you sense his hand. And that's all right. When I'm in trouble, all I need is God's hand. I don't necessarily need to see his face, but I need him to take me by the hand through the midst of that, right? And we can get even more particular with that because all of the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God 
through Jesus by the body of Christ if we trust him. Am I making some sense? God has a word for you even in your most dire strait. Now, sometimes we can't find that word. We have to know what that is there. The older you get, the harder it is to remember that Bible verse. But as long as you can remember the God of the Bible, you're good. Does that make some sense? Right. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was what? And something bizarre happened. And the fire of the Lord did what? Burnt among them. Do not go ho-hum. Do not go ho-hum. Because there's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that. Why was God so severe in that moment? They had complained back before they got out of Egypt. They had complained just a couple weeks later. I told you in chapter 14 about we don't have any water. And God gave them water. They went down the road and complained about no food. And God gave them food. God let them complain all the way up to this 14th month. The only reason he had to get at them a couple chapters back was because they made a golden calf. And even then, I told you, he only killed about 3,000. That's really merciful. And he only killed them because they persisted to oppose God. You're going to get what you get when you stand against the true and the living God. This time, God lets the fire come down without warning. Do you see that? Y'all stay with me. Some lessons to be learned. You know what it is? To whom much is given. God had advanced these people and so many witnesses of his goodness and his patience and his long suffering and his resources that they had no business a fifth time saying what they said. They had no business a fifth time saying what they said. Are y'all with me? I'm part of the legislative branch. I'm a judge. I'm just letting you know. If you come to my courtroom and I'm representing Jehovah and I realize that Jehovah has given you umpteen blessings and given you seven chances, at some point the gavel got to come down. Am I making some sense? See, the Lord is long suffering with us. So if he ever brings his judgment on us, know that it is always after a lengthy period of unscrupulous patience. See, we don't have to even, we, we should marvel at the fact that the fire don't come down every day. And some of us want it to start coming down right now. But you need to be careful because if you don't have the umbrella necessary to, to shield yourself from that fire, you might get consumed too. So just leave calling on God, Lord, bring fire down on them. Not yet, not yet, Lord, not yet. My, my, my political brethren want fire. I'm saying, nah, you liable to get burnt up first. Leave that fire alone, political brethren. Am I making some sense? Not yet, Lord. Not yet. Just restrain the evil. That's what we're asking. Restrain the evil and train your people to be what they're called to be in this world, prophetic and priestly. Train your people to be relevant in the culture as a light of a moral, ethical axiom. Fix laws by which God blesses people. Train us to be the mouthpiece for that. And put us in every aspect of government like you did with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Nehemiah, and Ezra, and all sorts of men and women, and Esther, in order for this world to know the true and the living God rules among men. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? 
You better hear what I'm saying. Because that kind of resolve is in order for us to preserve the world so that God doesn't destroy our children with it. Because if we don't have intervening human beings who represent God and possess his supernatural powers to mitigate the evil that's emerging everywhere, you can be sure some of our own will be swallowed up in it. Did you hear what I just stated? It amazes me how selfish Christians are. It's amazing to me how, see, see God sees generation to generation to generation. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason why Israel right now is not consumed is because God cares about the babies. These babies among them are the ones God knows are going into the promised land. He knows these fools are going to argue with him and he's going to have to be just. I already told you two sides are operating, right? Justice and what? Mercy. He's going to have to kill off a bunch of people. But he's also preserving the babies, is he not? See, God teaches us what his values are. Let the little ones come unto me. Under point number two, failure to see God's blessings. Verse one lays out how that God heard it and his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and what? Consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. What verses one, two, and three are going to explain to you and me is something really interesting. Jess, I don't want to stay here long, but it's important. The most dangerous place to be in the relationship with God's sort of constitutional and corporate entity is so far on the extremity of the kingdom of God that you halfway out and halfway in. The most dangerous place to be in relationship to God's kingdom is halfway out and halfway in. The most dangerous place to be in God's kingdom is that you are on the periphery. This is called the end. They were on the outskirts. These are the folks on the outskirts. Anybody listening to me? You're so far on the outskirts that you don't have the inside scoop. You're so far on the outskirts that you're more enamored by and pulled by the things of the world than you are by the revelations of God, by the promises of God, by the truth of God, by the presence of God. Am I making some sense? These are the peripheral people. When you're on the, listen to me, when you're on the periphery, you cannot know the secret things of God. Am I making some sense? Raise your hand if I'm making some sense. All right, y'all guilty. On the last day, y'all gonna be guilty. I'm telling the truth. You can play inside and outside of the church all you want to. But you can never have the depths of the knowledge of God unless you seek him with all your heart. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The Bible tells me if you are drawing near to God, God is drawing near to you. If you're drawing away from God, then God is also drawing away from you. Here's how you know this. Give yourself 10 years of acting a fool and thinking you can hang out on the periphery of divine truth. You will discover that you know less about the Bible than you did 10 years earlier. What you don't use, you will lose. Am I making some sense? Not only will your brain be empty of biblical truth essential to grounding you in the axiom of God's ways, word, and work, but then your heart also won't be in it. Because this is always a heart matter. Anybody keeping up with me? God told David in Psalm 27, seek me, David. And David says, my heart will seek you, O Lord. And David was a man after God's own what? That's why David was all right after all of his crazy stuff, because he still saw God. I still want David on my team when it's time to get down and get down. 
Right, because, I mean, he messed up a few times. He got distracted by those cute sisters, but I'm just saying, in a wartime scenario, I want David. Okay, I don't want son of his son Solomon. Solomon, no, you can stay back with the stuff. I want serious brothers in a wartime scenario. We're dealing with men of war. Are we talking about men of war here? We're talking about the men that's going to lead them into the promised land. And then once they get in, they've got to fight to keep their inheritance. And that's what you and I are dealing with in this crazy world right now. And we're losing our inheritances all over the place. The biggest one is freedom. The right to be who we are in Christ. The right to open our mouth and tell the truth as it is in Jesus. The right to argue our position in love and let men and women know why we hold the things we do in the conviction of our soul for which we are ready to die. We're losing that in our country right now. Because we've been playing on the periphery so long. And God is letting us know by this little emblem here, the fire came down. That's a tragic symbol of God having rejected them. Because that's the ultimate manifestation of God's judgment on his enemies, is it not? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. I want to do a few more things and keep going because I need to get to Moses. And the people cried unto Moses. They cried unto Moses. And it compelled Moses to do what? And that's right. Moses is the mediator, isn't he? And notice how the Lord listened to him. And the fire was quenched. Isn't that interesting? Now, what Moses should have found in his tent, which should have been a pretty big tent, you know, bigger than most of everybody else's, would you agree? Was a whole bunch of gifts from all the saints. What he should have found when he went home after he ran in the tabernacle and prayed for God to stop the fire. And the fire started was all kinds of, I'm thinking, uh, lamb chops, porterhouse steaks, filet mignon, top quality crab and shrimp, all that from the best parts of the ocean. Doesn't really matter how much it costs. I'm I'm hooking my boy up because he stopped the fire. No, he didn't get none of that. None of that came. He went home like nothing mattered. You see how unselfish we are? How, how, how selfish we are? You see it? They didn't even thank Moses. Now, may I say something? Because we're about to get into it. I hope I can just get to what I need to get to today. This bothered Moses. You know what bothered Moses? He running up and down the hill because he always got to go run up to God because <laughs> of these crazy people. And uh, this time around, he's not even getting any thanks from him. See what I'm saying? So now this is 14 months in. I'm telling you, this boy wants to, he wants a, uh, a, a balloon payment. He wants a, 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 what do they call it, parachute payment and just jump out quick. Because something happens to Moses that's extremely important for you and I to get here. It's extremely important. After time, things will wear you down. Is that true? You know how as parents we tell you, okay, so you're just about there now. You better stop. Isn't that what we say to them? You, you better stop. Especially those young teen, teenagers that are cantankerous and will push the button. You got to tell them, all right, you got to stop. Now just please, will you stop? Just stop because I'm going to get at you if you just don't. Leave, please leave me alone. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Please leave me alone. I've learned I got to lower my voice. Just go ahead on and quit. Stop now. Stop now. When the point number two, failure to see God's blessing... Sub point A, we're moving, we're moving, God's with us, so what's the problem, right? Do you see sub point A there? 
Now, that's all because of what I shared with you earlier. The tabernacle's done, the legislation is in, and Israel gets to move. What's the problem? We're on the move. And the people still want to complain. Subpoint B. What is the result of our rebellion? We already saw it. God poured out fire on them to consume them. Point number four. This moves me into Moses' situation. The frustration of Moses and his what? Right. So when you look at verses five and following, most of that is what I meant by the recapitulation principle. You saw them complaining in verse four, and the mixed multitude was among them that fell a lusting, and the children of Israel wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? Y'all got that? Now, so something happened here, which is really insightful. The mixed multitude were the Egyptians that came out of Egypt with them. The first group of people that got burnt up was the people that were living on the periphery of barely wanting to be part of the kingdom of God, but wanted to enjoy the advancement of the kingdom. They were glad to be out of Egypt, but they weren't super glad to be in Christ. They got burned up. Now you got the folks who came out of Egypt who they weren't complaining for 14 months. Give them praise because it was the Jews complaining. It was the Hebrews complaining. The Egyptians were cool until what? Now. Now, we could go into this on a topological, topographical level, and we could say down there in the peninsula where they are, it's real desert. It's real hot. It's real dry. And it can impact you psychologically when you're hanging out there for several months, right? Because they were there for a long time building the kingdom, as I told you, at least 14 months. And so I get it. Here, the people that are not truly Hebrews who don't have the promise of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they're now a little bit perturbed, are they not? But watch this. The perturbedness of the mixed mingled people provoked the Hebrew people to start complaining again. Is that what the text says? Right. I don't want to make a deep application here because I don't want you thinking that you the good Hebrew people and the person provoking you is the mixed mingled people. Don't go around grace trying to identify who's mixed mingle versus who's the real Hebrew. OK, we're not going to do that. I would really actually call this an example of what it means to struggle between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the spirit in your own person. Will that work? Because you got a mixed mingle person running around in you that loves acting crazy. Is that true? Just call him the mixed mingle person. I'm dealing with the mixed mingle today. Just excuse me. I'm struggling. The mixed mingle is trying to run the show. Right. And the Holy Spirit in you is is is, is telling you you need to bring him in subjection. Because if you're led by the flesh, you're going to suffer the consequences. But if you are led by the spirit, then you will experience the life prevailing power that subdues our carnal nature. That's a good application, isn't it? Good. So we can leave all of that judging other people alone. Church folk love to do that. Verse number five. Watch this. This is what it goes on to say. We remember the fish and we did eat in Egypt freely and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions. See, so Israel's head is turned all the way back. Here's where the real offense comes in at. Here's where the real offense comes in that verse six. But now our soul is what? Oh, why? Why is your soul dried away? Didn't I just tell you you came out of Egypt? You were under a contract that wants to kill every man child. The only people the Egyptian wanted were the women so they could repopulate their own Egyptian culture. 
You were under a death threat. You were under annihilation. And here God has saved you and preserved you. And you're going to talk about a dry soul. This is the temptation of carnal Christians who have a love for entertainment rather than the truth of the gospel. Y'all ready for me? This is the temptation of carnal, worldly Christians that spend a lot of time, we would call this the drip, drip mentality of living on the world. Just kind of letting the world permeate their psyche, permeate their emotional makeup, permeate their predilections and, and their bench. See, you need to get this. You can't have the world in Christ too in the sense of your soul's allegiance being so wrapped up in material things and worldly things and carnal things and it not destroy your hunger for God. It'll destroy your hunger for God. Am I making some sense? So very true, child of God, so very true. So very true. So what we have here is the children of Israel telling us that the gospel no longer is bringing satisfaction to their soul. Because the gospel is symbolized here by the manna. Look at the text. Give me a few more minutes of your time. Look at the text. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all but this manna before our eyes. Now this is a worse crime than verse 1. When they were just complaining about where they are. Because now they're despising God's son who is represented by the manna. I am the bread of life that gives my flesh for the world. If any man eat of me, he'll never hunger again. If he drinks of me, he'll never thirst. And this language is indicating that church folk can despise the gospel. It's really true. This is why you got so many churches that are wrapped up in so many other kinds of things other than the truth of God's word and the truth in Christ. Am I making some sense? And you can tell because they have no passion for the truth of Christ. See, we, we just teach truth here. That's all we do. We teach the gospel. We preach Christ. We exalt God. We make it plain. The Bible's about him, not about us. We're beneficiaries, but this is about Jesus. And we tell men and women, the father's happy in the son. And if you want the father's happiness, you got to be in the son. So the joy of the Lord in your life is the joy of Christ in your life. And and it has to be evidenced by your hunger and thirst and pursuit of Jesus. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. These people are in danger, are they not? They're in danger of despising the gospel. You see it right there. A lot of Christians end up that way too. They end up that way because they don't have a consistent diet of biblical truth as the dominant means of strengthening their spiritual system. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. And the manna was a coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of delium, verse 8. And the people went about and gathered it as the law taught them. You guys know that back in chapter 14 of Exodus. And they ground it in meal. That's one way. And they beat it in a mortar. They had to get it real fine. Then they baked it in pans and they made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of fresh oil. Wow. Mmm, yummy, yummy, yummy. Pastor, what you talking about? God was feeding them for health. 
not for pleasure. He was feeding them for health, not for pleasure. He was feeding them to strengthen their body, to prepare them for the journey so they could enter into the promised land and not be toxic and not be sick and not be excessive and not be corrupted by the synthetic foods of our present culture. On a larger spiritual level, it's the carnality of this world. It's loving the things of this world. Because once you love the things of this world, the love of the Father cannot coexist in you. I'm telling the truth. See, God's feeding us in a way to prepare us for glory, not for material wealth and excess. All that's easy to come. Those can be weights that cast you into the deepest part of hell. The Bible's clear. Life does not consist in the abundance of things which a man possesses. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. Material things doesn't affirm the fact that you know God. Not at all. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The real task of believers in America is learning how to be really authentic Christians with your priorities right. In addition to all of these material goods that God has given us, unlike almost every other part of the world. Am I making some sense? How do you manage the wealth and prosperity of economics and material things in this present world without it sinking you into hell? Because the church on a larger aggregate level has not done a good job. I'm making some sense, am I not? Every Christian individually has to prove that they can live with the blessings of God in a way in which they don't take those blessings and turn them into a curse. And so what God was saying to Israel is, I want to keep you alive through this journey to get you into the promised land. And once I get you in there, you're going to have to fight to obtain your position and you're going to have to fight to keep it. And you need to be in the best shape you possibly can. And this is what we are speaking to only in spiritual terms. Am I making sense? And this is why people don't grasp the gospel. And this is why they don't grasp even the deeper things of the gospel. You can't handle the kind of warfare that's going on in my present world right now with all kind of crazy, crazy diabolical technological things and a panoramic of assaults against us. You cannot handle those things if you're not deeply rooted and deeply grounded in Christ and have the prism of the gospel helping you see the right and the wrong of it. You can't handle it. That's why most people have not been able to handle the pressure of what's going on over the last couple of years. They can't handle it because they're not deeply rooted in God's word. This is really true. Look at verse nine and get ready to go on. And when, and when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it, verse 10. And then Moses heard the people weep through their families. There it is. They're all weeping. All these folks in their houses, every man in the door of his tent. Isn't that pathetic, children of God? Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that pathetic? They hate church. They hate worship. They hate all that God has provided for them. This is a bad, you have need of patience. Can you see it now? You have need of endurance. They don't know that right around the corner is the blessing. They don't, but you, I was sitting here thinking about this. I got about 10, 15 minutes with you left. I was sitting here thinking about this. Watch this. I said to myself, you know what? God has not allowed to emerge in this narrative journey which we should all know as a uh, a priori assumption, is the presence of the devil. 
You have not seen the devil in any of these excursions so far, have you? All you've seen is the horizontal reaction of the people pro or con to God's intervention. Is that true? Well, you must know the devil is still there. You must know he's working behind the scenes. You must know his maniacal ways are manipulating leadership, manipulating the common people on the ground, manipulating the wives in the tents, complaining against the husbands, manipulating the kids. You must know that he's there. Do you guys not know that? He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's just not showing up visibly because God is calling you and I to personal responsibility that this is true. Watch this now. Even though the enemy is lurking, even though he's trying to get you to be distracted, even though he's tempting you in the flesh, God is present. God has not left. His fire is there. His cloud is there. His word is there. His servants are there. Men are there. God's not going anywhere. And with God, you and God are a majority. Right? Greater is he that is in us and with us than he that is of the world. Am I making some sense? Not going to let you go until you get that. Because y'all got these battles in your home. I have them in my home. We all have them. We got these battles going on. We got these battles going on and we are unaware as to how close we are to our victories. Now, here's where the part that gets just really interesting to me. I might end up just stopping at this point because this is so absolutely important. The frustration of Moses and his weakness. Notice what the text said. Moses heard the people weep throughout their families and every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Do you see it? Now, look at that last line. Look at that last line very carefully. Moses was also what? Good. We got to drill down into that. Because remember what I shared with you, him being a mediator. Sometimes when the predicament comes up, he's on the people's side. But now he running to God saying, Lord, have mercy on him like he did back in verse two, right? But at other times, when they're clowning, he's on God's side. Right now, he's on God's side. He's as mad with them as God is. That's a problem. Stay with me. Because that's a problem. We have two roles, prophetic and what? Priestly. When we're operating in our priestly mode, Our job is to sincerely represent the people to God. When you sincerely represent the people to God, it means you bring the people, the people to God with a heart of a priest that knows he actually represents the people now to God. Did that make some sense? So so this is why Jesus was meek and lowly. Right. And lowly of heart. This is why Jesus didn't break a smoking flax. Or a bruised reed. He didn't quench the flax or the bruised. He was gentle with men. Now, he dealt with the fools, as y'all know. But he was gentle with men. And in the priestly dimension, your role in mind is to make sure that we don't exercise the prophetic office. Because the prophetic office is what Elijah did, who represented the, the prophets. Lord, bring, bring down fire. And remember, John and James wanted to bring down fire in the gospel. Jesus said, you don't even know what spirit you are of. Am I making some sense? 
the time when you need to go to God in the behalf of the craziness of the people, you have to have the heart of the people. Am I making some sense? I mean, if the people represent the children and you represent the parent, when you go to God on the behalf of your children, you have to go to God on the behalf of your children with the vulnerability of understanding what your children are going through so that you can get God's favor. God doesn't want you going to him as a parent like Elijah to bring judgment on your own children. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Yes. Let me, let me, I'm going to drill down into it because I want you to get it. So the King James does not do a great job with this word because in the Hebrew, the term for God's anger and the term for Moses' displeasure are two different Hebrew terms. And I'm getting ready to teach you some truth here. This is where we'll get ready to wrap it up. God has every right to be angry, right? Because he's always slow to anger. This is what we learn, right? Slow to anger. So here we go. God's now just now bringing some judgment after 14 months. That's slow. After giving you all those goods, I already told you what I would have done back in the first month. Um, God's slow with us. But Moses has done something that we can all actually identify with. Are you ready with that? Moses now gets angry with the people with an anger that is wicked. The word displeased in the Hebrew means to take an ill-favored position of wickedness towards someone. The word here displeased and Moses was ill favored with the people and thought wickedly. Did y'all get what I just stated? Mm -hmm. Hear it again, because you know this experientially. You know when you get grieved beyond reason, you can actually have a wicked thought about someone you care about. Don't act like I'm not telling you something you don't know. Moses allowed the cumulative difficulty of the children of Israel on this occasion to get him. Raise your hand if you got that, because I don't need to have to drill that down too much. The first time this word is used is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when God says, I saw the imagination of the sons of men, that it was wholly given over to wickedness. That's the group of people God had to destroy in the flood. Am I making some sense? The next time you see that word read before we get to our text is in uh, Genesis chapter 19, chapter 13, where God said to uh, to Abraham when Lot wanted to go down to Sodom and the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. Whoa. Here Moses is the meekest man in all the earth. But on this day. He's just as bad as the men that corrupted the earth in the days of Noah and as the Sodomites in Genesis 13. Y'all keeping up with me? But that would never be your experience. You keeping up with me? I'm going to lock it down here in a moment. because I just want you to get it. Why we need to read our Bible carefully. Moses does something in light of this internal betrayal of his office as priest toward the people of God. Because when you take the priestly role and you're praying to God, several things. Okay, this is important. I'm going to give it to you now. When we're talking about praying to God on the behalf of other people, you and I are talking about an act that requires us to be selfless. This is why people don't pray. 
People don't pray because people are way too selfish. If you're wrapped up in yourself and everything starts with you and ends with you, you're not praying to God. I guarantee you're not. And God's not going to hear your prayers if all you're doing is coming complaining as if the world revolves around you. So you might as well not pray to God. Am I making some sense? I'm talking to us as human beings. If you're new and I'm shocking you, I'm sorry. These people know me. They know me. I'm not going to play games with these people. Right. They know me. Right. And I know you. So you can play church all you want to, but church folk have reserved for them the deepest parts of hell when you play games with God. What we know by nature is that we're sinners. And we must have the grace of God to approach God when we occupy an office like priesthood. I don't get to come to God raggedy praying on the behalf of somebody else without first coming with a sacrifice to God myself. I've got to come with Jesus to the Father to cleanse me and wash me and purge me and sanctify me and correct my heart, Lord, before I petition for my kids and for my wife and for other people. Is it making sense? This is called being essentially counterintuitive. And this is what I love about Moses. Look at the next verse. This is called an exegetical of verse 10. Look at the next verse. This is the, I'm going to land here. I'm done here. I'll come back next time and pick up on what God did. God did something beautiful as a, as a counterintuitive response to Moses' need, but I want to unpack it fully next week, okay? Listen to what it says. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore have you afflicted your servant? Do you see that? Now I want you to get it. Wherefore have I not found favor in your sight? Do you see that? Don't be superficial. Don't be superficial. This is a recapitulation principle. We were just there in Exodus 33. Lord, have I found favor in your sight? Have I found favor in your sight, Lord? Have I found favor in your sight? Are y'all with me? That's a very serious request. Because Moses wanted to know if he really had God's supernatural blessings on him. Am I making some sense? Think with me now for a moment. Please think with me now. Please think with me now. Think with me now. When you are in a position of needing to help people and then you discover that you need help yourself. Please think with me for a moment. And you discover that you are wretched. Because that's what he's saying. Look at what it's saying. Wherefore have I not found favor in your sight? You laid all this burden of this people upon me. So now Moses is feeling the weight of their petitions on him, right? Well, he could bear it up to this point because grace was helping him. Grace always helps us to bear our responsibilities. If God removes his grace or if we get from up under his grace, then all of a sudden those burdens are too heavy for us. Look at the next verse. Here it is. Here it is. Watch it. Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, carry them in your bosom as a nursing father bearing the suckling uh, suckling child unto the land which you swear unto your fathers? I want you to get the answer. Yes. Yes, Moses. Yes, you are the typical father for this group of people that I have used and positioned you to bring them into the land. 
But at this moment, Moses doesn't have a scintilla of spiritual grace to recognize this calling. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm looking at the clock and I'm saying I got five or six or seven verses I would have to take you through to show you this. But God expected and God accomplished in Moses this very thing. It's in Isaiah 63. You can read it in your own time. God lifted up them up on eagles' wings, brought them into himself in the wilderness by the hand of his servant Moses. God brought them through the wilderness, fed them with manna, fed them with water by the hand of his servant Moses. God brought them to the brink of the promised land by the hand of his faithful servant Moses. And God gave Moses the credit for being the mediator of it because Moses points to our greater mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself also said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. It was heavy on him, wasn't it? Was it heavy on him? If it was heavy on Jesus, shouldn't it be heavy on Moses? And if it's heavy on Moses, isn't it often going to be heavy on us? And I want you to hear me now. I love Moses because this act that he's engaging in is really called meekness. When you're meek, you're submissive to God. See, he could have just went away and started complaining himself. He could have hardened his heart. He could have just wrote off all of these crazy Hebrew people as absolute moronic, you know, reprobates like a lot of church folk do. He didn't. In his extremity, he went to God. Is it coming home now, Mike? Is it coming home? Listen to the text carefully. He said, and wasn't he, wasn't he as candid as you could possibly be? And I actually will argue that the spirit of God is working in Moses, even in his petition to the father in setting forth the illustration of what Moses is going to fulfill even before he does it. See, Moses doesn't even know that he, Moses, you're going to have to suck it up, bro. You got 38 more years to go. Can I have you for five more minutes? Moses, it's tough right now, but you got 38 more years to go. And we're getting ready to go around the corner, and it's going to get worse than this. You keeping up with me? It's getting ready to get bad in the next chapter. I mean, it's getting ready to get real bad. So Moses is being compelled by the spirit of grace that's in him to draw near to God rather than to draw away from God. That's a beautiful example for us. Then when you draw near to God, just be real with God. Just lay it out. God can handle it. I done already told you the blood has paid for it all. He already know you coming. It's by design. Right. It's by design. Look at verse 13. Here it is. Look at verse 13. Why should I, when, from when should I have flesh to give unto all these people? For they weep unto me saying, give us flesh that we may eat. You see how Moses is feeling like there's no help in his soul. Their request is beyond his capacity in his own mind, right? He has to come to that narrow focus trap I talked to you about, right? 
And, and that's because he's forgotten that his resource is God. But that happens to us, doesn't it? Right. Because, I mean, they didn't come to him before about this. Have they come to him before about this? Of course. And what does God say to Moses? Moses, go do this. And God takes care of him. Right. He's just weary right now. Look at verse 14. This is important. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. Honest, isn't he? Honest, 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 God, honest, honest, honest. Jethro told him that back in chapter 18 of Exodus. You can't do this on your own, son. Remember that? You need a, you need a team. This is what I meant by the capitulation principle. Stay with me. But sometimes even when you have a team of cohorts to help you, you're not thinking of the team. Because all of the complaints are coming to you as you perceive it. It's not true. It's coming to them, too. But you set up the structure in which you get the major complaint. But at this time, Moses is worn down, saints. He's done. Y'all get what I'm saying? He's not even conscious that he has a team. Under this one, he's really, that's why I told you, pray for Moses. Pray for Moses. See what I'm getting at? Now watch this. It's too heavy for me. He's right. He's right. It was never, ever meant for him to bear alone. Moses is the type of the law. The law can never bring you into salvation. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Moses can bring you close. The law can bring you close. It cannot bring you in. You need Jesus. Am I making some sense? And all Moses is admitting is what we call the weak and unprofitableness of the law. The law can show you what's right. It can't make you right. The law can lead you to where you should go, but only Christ can take you where you should go. Am I making some sense? I love Moses because he's being honest. No man can save another man. A nation of men cannot save another man. All of America cannot save America. America needs Jesus. America needs Christ. It's really true. I got one more minute. Verse 15. I love this. And if you will deal thus with me, kill me. Just kill me. Kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in your sight, and let me not any longer see my wretchedness. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm about done here. So this is the text that Moses is acknowledging to God that I'm sinning against you, and I'm sinning against this people. Anybody with me? He's saying, Lord, this ain't going to work because I'm mad as heck. I'm cussing on the inside. I'm sent to hell with these people. Y'all keeping up with me? Yeah, that's what he's saying. And he's saying, that's wretched. I'm saved. That's wretched. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body? We love to sing that stuff. Oh, by the way, and I'm done here. God gives you grace not to have to smell yourself. As much as you would if he took his hand off you. Am I making some sense? 
On this day, Moses is smelling himself. And he doesn't like what he smells. He senses the stench of his fallen nature, ready to take an ax to the very people he was called to be a minister to. I thank God for Moses because this act is not only going to avert Moses's sinful disposition toward the people of God, but God is so good. God is so good. He says, Moses, I'm going to use this for my glory. I'm getting ready to do something that's going to be marvelous. I'm going to take the fire that I used to burn up those halfway in and halfway out rebels. And I'm going to put it on the 70 in the person of the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to do something marvelous that would set a pattern for every local church as to how we deal with difficulties in our community. And it's not by drawing away from God, but by drawing closer to God. Because there is a fire that will fix all the problems if we would draw near to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.